The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. I'm going to have you turn with me to uh, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. I want to read from verse 14. This is, this is uh, Christ's, the beginning of his Galilean ministry, which we'll talk about in just a second, but it's, it's right in the middle. Christ has, uh, he served for three years, and this is the middle year that begins right here in this chapter. He comes into his hometown, Nazareth, where he grew up. That's kind of strange to us. Most of us uh, didn't grow up in the town we were born in because we move around so much. But Jesus was born at a time when he was born and he grew up in a town. He became the, he followed his, his human father's path and became the carpenter of this town. So everybody knew him. And so you can see they're offended when he comes into the synagogue and people start talking about him as though he's the Messiah. So listen to this. This is Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread all around the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues, that is in Galilee, this area of uh, Israel, the northernmost province. He began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the, it's actually a scroll, he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. This is what you heard this morning, Isaiah 61, the opening three verses. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. This is the way a teacher would do. If he had something to say, he would say it sitting. So he sat down. And all the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, this is what Jesus says. After the reading of this prophecy about the coming Messiah, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? I mean, we know this guy, right? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. In other words, if you claim you can heal people, then heal yourself. He he goes on, whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. He He had performed miracles in Capernaum. If you remember in Cana, just north of Nazareth is where in John 2, he goes to the wedding of Cana of Galilee and he turns the water into wine. That was his first miracle. And it says that's when he started to show forth his glory. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there are many widows in Israel. Now, this is going to offend them. 
This is his hometown group, and he knows how they're feeling about him. And so now he says to them, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Now you would have had to read 1 Kings to understand this story, but what happened was uh, there was a lot of widows within the land of Israel, God's people, but God sends Elijah outside of Israel. And he says, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, no rain whatsoever, drought, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them. God didn't send Elijah the prophet to anyone in Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow, a Gentile. Now you have to understand, and I think you do understand how it is when you're a part of the major people group, and those outside of that people group are looked down upon, and that's exactly how it was. They were God's chosen people, and so for Elijah the prophet to go and minister to a Gentile widow was a great affront to these Jews. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him, that is Jesus, out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him off the cliff. And this is the last verse in this little pericope. He says, but passing through their midst, he went away. He just supernaturally walked right through them and left. Now, uh, putting this thing in perspective, this particular incident's perspective, this is, uh, <clears throat> this is the beginning of the second year. This is a common way to divide the ministry of Jesus. It's not, ac- it's not technically accurate, but it's primarily accurate. This is the flow of the three years of his public ministry. The first year was a year of obscurity. The second year is a year of public favor when he he performs a lot of supernatural things and uh, he has his 12 apostles as a part of his group. And then you have the third year, the year of opposition. So the text we're looking at is the beginning of this second phase. And the geographical area is uh, Galilee. Galilee is the northernmost province in Israel. The Sea of Galilee... I've never been to Israel, but I'm, I'm sure some of you have. But this, the Sea of Galilee is a beautiful place if you've seen the pictures. And it was a place where the hometown of Jesus was. It was in this province of Galilee. And so this is where the second year takes place of ministry. It began in Cana, which is in Galilee, at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. But then, now he goes to Nazareth. And after this experience that I just read to you in Nazareth, he goes and makes his home after this in Capernaum. And so when you're reading the story of Jesus, if you've never read the story of Jesus in the Bible, I would advise you to start with the Gospel of Luke. It's the shortest, it's the fastest moving, and it's the easiest to read. You could actually read it in a couple hours. You could invest two hours and read the, the life of Jesus Christ, his birth, his ministry, his death, his burial, and resurrection. And so... What we have here is the beginning of this phase. And he reads, when he's given an opportunity to read, and this was a common thing, there usually about four men are allowed to read Scripture. And then if someone was going to teach, they would sit and they would address the synagogue. Now the synagogue is kind of the... Um, well, the church, the church meetings like this are really based upon the synagogue. The synagogue came into being during the Babylonian captivity. 
Because if you remember, there's a temple down in Jerusalem. There was then. And so they would go to the temple. That's where the priests were. That's where they offer sacrifices. But when they were in Babylonian captivity, they were separated from the temple and they began to meet in these groups. And they call them synagogues. Synagogue just means to gather together, to draw people together. And so they would meet together and they would hear the word of God. And it filled their hearts with hope because they were for 70 years in captivity in Babylon. And so they had this hope that they would be returned to the land and that there was going to be a time of glory in the future for the nation of Israel that was at this point in a very desperate situation. And so he quotes this, and these are the words again. Now, you heard the whole chapter read before this, but listen to, uh, to, to this again when he speaks here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That, by definition, is what the Messiah is. The Messiah is the one that the Lord gives the Spirit as empowerment to accomplish his mission. He has been sent into the world. This is the eternal Son of God who was sent into the world to become an incarnate Son of God and to do, accomplish this mission he was on, which was to save God's people and to restore them to relationship with him. And so Jesus reads these, these words that are recorded there in verse 18 of, of Luke 4. And when he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. These are the words of Isaiah, the prophet. He gave this prophecy 750 years before Jesus reads this here. And I'm sure you're all aware that in the Old Testament, we have prophesied when Jesus was going to be born, where he was going to be born, and the circumstances of his birth, and then what he was going to do in life. We're even told he's going to die, be crucified, be buried, and resurrected in Isaiah 53. So this was all prophecy, and so Jesus reads this prophecy, but then he closes the scroll and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, right before your eyes. How is that? Well, the Messiah, the anointed one, was sitting right there before them, teaching them and proclaiming this truth to them. And so all three of the synoptics mention the beginning of this ministry in Galilee. Matthew chapter 4, Mark chapter 1, and Luke chapter 4 all speak about this event. In Mark, though, something interesting. He introduces this phase of Christ's ministry by an event that took place, which was the, which was the launching pad, so to speak of the beginning of this phase of Christ's ministry. And this is what Mark writes. And after John had been taken into custody, John the Baptist was taken into custody. Now he ends up becoming beheaded, as you know. But he's taken into custody. He was the forerunner. He was the one who introduced Jesus as the Messiah to the people of Israel. And now he's been arrested. And so Mark says, and after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, turn from your rebellion against God and believe in the gospel, believe in the good news. Elsewhere, he calls this the good news of the kingdom. Why is that? Because the king is there. Jesus is the king. This Messiah came into the world, and he's going to reign over the kingdom of God. In fact, what Jesus, when Jesus refers to himself in the Gospels, about 90% of the time he refers to himself as the Son of Man. That's a title. It's a title first, we first see in Daniel chapter 7. It's a title of the man that God appoints as ruler over the kingdom of God. 
We find out later this man who's going to be appointed the ruler over the kingdom of God is the eternal son of God who has become a man. And so he's preaching about the kingdom of God. So the time of the forerunner, John, has ended, and the time of the king, the Messiah, has begun. What is this kingdom of God? Well, the Messianic kingdom was promised in the Old Testament that there's a kingdom over which the Messiah would reign. So if we want to define the kingdom, we have to look at the Old Testament, which I'm not going to take the time to do. But when you go back there and you see the kingdom of God, for example, if you read through the book of of Daniel, you'll see that the kingdom of God is primarily the rule of God in the world. And the ruler is none other than the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this Messianic kingdom that's promised in the Old Testament, Jesus doesn't need to define it because they all know what it is. It's this promise that Israel is going to flourish and it's going to be elevated above all the nations. It's very mysterious in a sense. How in the world is God going to raise up Israel above all the nations? That'd be probably the last nation you would ever choose to raise above the nations. But this is what the Old Testament says repeatedly. And what it is, it's a perfect picture of the kind of Savior that God is. In one place in the Old Testament, it's, uh, it said of a, a woman who came to faith, it says she, she was taken off the ash heap and she was caused to sit with princes. And that's kind of what it was like when we got saved, wasn't it? It's like he picked us up and he put us in his presence and he blessed us and he gave us a place and a position and a righteousness, not our own, but the righteousness of Christ. And so this is why the Messiah came into the world. And so Luke sees this as the significant beginning of this public ministry in Galilee, where Jesus is going to show forth his glory in many, many different ways. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, he says, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Notice that, the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, the poor, the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind and the blind. I, when I was at this pastor's conference last week, we were down there. Some of us were down to, at uh, the shepherd's conference. 4,800 pastors there. And I ran into a guy that I've known a long time. It was Jennifer's dad, John Fernandes. And uh, so we, we saw each other. We had a good time just reminiscing over some stuff and laughing. And, and then I remembered he had gone to India. And I said, hey, how was the trip to India? What was that like? And so he began to tell me. This was actually a second trip to this area. The first time he'd gone, they had just killed 50 pastors. The Hindus were quite upset over the fact that Christianity is really flourishing and growing, and a lot of people are being converted, and so they began to persecute the church, and they killed 50 pastors. And he says, the last time I was there, I met with the widows of some of these men, but they couldn't talk. They were just so overwhelmed with grief. But he said, this time, it's been a couple of years, I met with nine widows and their children, and I got to hear the stories. And they were incredible stories about the way they put them to death and the fact that these men stood true to their conviction that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then he said something. We both got to laughing about this. He said, I was was leading this meeting, and all the people together, then all of a sudden this guy comes walking up, and he has this massive knot on his head, and a cut. He had been hit in the head with a big piece of cement on the way to the meeting. 
He'd been jumped and beaten up. And he kind of staggers in, and John walks over and talks, asks, talks to him, asks him what happened, and he kind of told him. And so and the guy says, would you pray for me? A little pressure there, huh? Would you pray for me? <laughs> that God would heal me? And John says, you know, sure, I'll pray for you. If anybody asks you to pray for him, you'll pray for him. So he prays for him. But he says, then what happened was I finished praying. I said, you need to go see a doctor. <laughs> and the guy said, why? I feel fine now. I'm okay. <laughs> and we both bust out laughing because we both know that's the kind of faith I have. You know? And these people here in this account, they had no faith. We're told in the account in Mark that Jesus couldn't do many miracles there because of their unbelief. All he could do, I love this, all he could do was heal a few people. He laid hands on a few people and healed them. (laughs) That's all he could do. Why? Because their lack of faith. But how was their lack of faith manifested? It was manifested by the fact that they didn't ask him. I don't know if you ever think of this, but when you pray, you're exercising faith. When you go before the Lord and you ask him to meet your needs, you're exercising faith. Who would pray other than people who actually believe that God hears your prayers? And we're told that we have an intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. So every prayer I offer up, Jesus is the one who intercedes for me and passes that request on to the Father. And then it tells me that the Spirit's been given to me to assure my heart that God is my Father so I can actually talk to him like my Father. I can ask him. Somebody told me the other day that when I talk about a father, some people don't have the same kind of emotion about as you do. Okay, but let me tell you, God is a perfect father to his children. And if you know Christ, if you've rested faith in Christ, you become a child of God, and God is your father, and he cares about you. And so when you make requests of him in the name of Christ, we're told in John 15 that he takes great delight in answering our prayers. When we go to him with our needs and we make those needs known to him in the name of Christ, he takes delight in answering those prayers. Why doesn't he answer all your prayers then? Because he's a lot wiser than you are and a lot wiser than me. I'll give you an example. Elijah was being chased by a woman to kill him. She wasn't after him for her husband. She wanted to kill him. That was Jezebel. And she wanted to kill him. So he is so discouraged because she's in power and she sends her strong arm in after him. He's so discouraged and defeated that he goes out in the, in the wilderness and he says he lays down under a broom tree and he begins to ask God to take his life. He said, I've had enough. Please just take my life. So what happened was God didn't answer the prayer of Elijah because he had a purpose in Elijah's life. And I got to tell you, I think all of us have experienced this. If you've lived for Christ very long, there are times when you want God to do something for you and he doesn't do it. But then you find out as you get down the road and look back, you realize that's exactly what I, I'm so glad he did what he did rather than answer my requests. Because he's a loving father. And he answers the prayers of his children. Now these people lack faith. They lack faith because of familiarity. You've heard that expression, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, this was a homeboy. I mean, think of this. Jesus gets up in the synagogue and he reads in a hush over the the whole congregation. 
But these people, as he speaks, you got to remember, these are people, the older people saw him when he was a little boy running around. The younger people probably played in the street with him. And then some of the people knew him from the fact that he was a village carpenter, which meant a handyman, a fix-it guy, like his father. And so who does he think he is? Have you ever had that happen to you, that somebody you grew up with you knew real well, and all of a sudden you find out they're famous or they're rich or they're successful in a way that you couldn't even measure? No? Uh, (laughs) Well, if that did, it would be very tempting to be jealous, wouldn't it, and to be sour grapes, And that's the way they were. And that's why it says everybody was speaking well of him, him, but then they said, isn't this the son of Joseph, the carpenter? I mean, who does he think he is? Well, he knows who he is. And that's what startled them, that he's the Messiah. Now, they had no faith in him, and they didn't ask for anything. Why do we trust him? Why is it that we see the same thing that they saw? We're at a distance, but we see it, and we see the life of Jesus. And there was no royalty about him. In fact, the Bible says in Isaiah that when he was, when he was here, there was nothing glorious about him in his, just his looks and his, the, the countenance that he had that would make you think he's something special. He wore clothes like everybody else. Uh, he was just, he kind of melted into the community. What set him apart was what, what God did through him. When he healed the sick, raised the dead, and cast out demons. That was pretty spectacular. And so that got a lot of people's attention. And so Jesus proclaimed the truth that he was the Messiah. But here's why we, we esteem him and we worship him. The church exists to worship Christ and through Christ to worship the Father in the power of the Spirit. That's why we exist. We exist for Jesus Christ. You know, we, we talk a lot about holiness and sanctification and learning how to live the Christian life in a way that pleases God and brings great pleasure to our lives. What holiness is, is Christ-likeness. It's Christ-likeness. That's what holiness is. Because Jesus was completely set apart to the Father. That's being sanctified. He lived his life for the glory of the Father. And so when we follow in his steps, that's a path of holiness. And so the reason that we do esteem him and worship him is, first of all, because he's God's Messiah. There's three things in the fact that he quotes this passage and says, you have seen these things fulfilled right before your eyes today. The first is that Jesus applied Isaiah's prophecy to himself. He basically said, this is talking about me. This is who he is. And second, he's claiming to be the Messiah. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So it is about me. I'm the Messiah. Third, he's aware of what lay before him. The reason he is is because the Old Testament tells us what's going to happen to him. If we were to go back to Isaiah 53, I guess we might as well give you a little exercise in finding books in the Bible. Go back to Isaiah 53. And notice Jesus knew this about his future. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, let's begin looking just at a few verses, but look at um, verse 4. This is talking about the anointed one, the Messiah who's going to come. 
And he says, surely our griefs he himself bore. Now, this is prophetic. 700 years before it happened, 750 years actually, Isaiah is writing these words about the Messiah. And so he says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we, we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God. In other words, we thought he was getting what he deserved, is what Isaiah is saying prophetically. That his own people would think that he was rejected by God. That's why he was suffering, because he was making false claims. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. Yes, he was being punished. But why? For our transgressions, Isaiah says. He stood in our place. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we were healed. Isaiah said when he was scourged, he didn't even look like a man. He was so beat up. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our sin was placed upon him. And his righteousness was given to us. Our sin was placed upon him. In fact, the way Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, the Father, he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the most amazing thing. You know, if you were to commit a crime, I'm sure nobody here ever commits any crimes, but if you were to commit a crime, I mean a serious crime, like you robbed a bank or something, and you went before the judge, the judge would, his responsibility would oversee this trial. And if it was a jury trial, they made the final decision. Or if it was a judge making the decision, he would examine the evidence. And then he would make a decision. And he would either condemn you, declare you guilty, or he would justify you and say you are innocent, you're righteous in this matter. What we're told is Jesus became sin for us and the Father poured out his his penalty for our sins upon his son. In fact, listen to this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. This is a king of glory. This is the creator and sustainer of all things. Everything that has come into being has come into being through him, we're told in John 1. And yet he could have easily destroyed these people who were treating him the way they were when they prepared him for crucifixion. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for the, his generation, for, as far as his generation, those who lived and were of his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my, transgression of my people? You see, if they would have, if they would have, uh, if they would have acknowledged that Jesus was being punished for their sin, it would be like looking in a mirror and seeing how old and ugly I am. And who wants to do that? And they didn't want to acknowledge the fact that what was going on here, they had this passage right here. And it's perfectly fulfilled. Jesus was born in the city that we're told he was going to be born in, the Messiah. He came just as the Old Testament said he would, but they didn't even consider this. No one considered it. His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. And you know how that unfolded after his crucifixion. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased. Now, this is amazing. 
His father, Yahweh, was pleased to crush him. Why? I have never seen a, a, a father punish his son and take delight in it. I'm sure that does happen in some places, but I've never seen it. In fact, I remember my dad almost every time he had to spank me, all three times, uh, <laughs> he said, and I'm sure this is a common saying, he said, son, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I didn't believe it, but now I do. But here it says the father was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And then he goes on, he says, this is what's going to happen afterwards. He will see his seed, those for whom he died. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And so we worship him, we esteem him, we exalt him, because he's the Messiah. And he was aware, coming in, he knew exactly what he was going to face. In fact, it was so wretched that he was, when he was in the garden, the night he's arrested, he's in the garden praying, and he calls out to the Father, and he says, Abba, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me without me drinking it. But then he stops himself in mid-sentence, and he says, but not my will, your will be done. Not what I want, but what you want. And he went to the cross for us. And so the Father, in pouring out his judgment on the Son, exhausts the righteous justice of God in the case of those who believe upon him. My sins have been paid for by Jesus Christ because he stood in my place. He actually stood and willingly stood in my place and took the blow of the wrath of God for me. Now, these people that heard him and claimed to be the Messiah, some of them welcomed him, but then they soon turned on him. There was only a small remnant who actually believed on him and followed him. In verse 24, it says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. <laughs> they were too familiar with him to think he was the Messiah. I've run into this with people who grew up in church, and all they've seen is symbols of Christ and words about Christ that had no significance to them, and now they have no esteem for him at all. But what the Holy Spirit does in the heart when he brings us to faith in Christ, as he convicts us, he brings conviction to the heart that the most ultimate sin in all the world is not to believe in Christ. He came and died in the place of sinners. And if we say, I don't want him, I don't believe him, that is the most heinous sin you could ever commit. And so it says the Spirit comes and he convicts the world of sin because they do not believe in me. Jesus said that. Now, his style of preaching... He spoke with authority, not as the scribes. I don't know if you've never heard a scribe uh, preach or teach, but you may have heard somebody like them, maybe me once in a while. Uh, it says they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Same thing is said in Matthew 7 on the, when he's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, teaching the large group, he's teaching the Sermon on the Mount. They, it says the same thing. He didn't teach like the Scribes, he taught with great authority. What was the difference? Well, the scribes were dry and boring. And here's why. They didn't teach the Bible. They didn't teach what the scriptures taught. They taught their traditions. They taught religion, the proper breadth of your phylactery, which was the little box that you wore on your head with scriptures in it to remind you to obey the word. 
or they, they taught on the proper postures of prayer. Should you bow down on one knee or two knees? And they would teach on those kinds of things or the proper length of your fasts. How long will you go without eating? One meal? We used to have this preacher that would come and preach to the church I was growing up in, and he would always talk about how much he'd been fasting. But he was really a large guy. Like, he looked like he ate really well. And so I asked the pastor one day, I said, you know, I've noticed that he always mentions the fact that he'd been fasting about this meeting, but he doesn't look like he's fasted. And the pastor, with a twinkle in his eye, said, well, what he means by fast is he didn't eat as much as he wanted to. Well, the scribes, they had a prescription for how you must do everything. It was religion. It wasn't gospel. And they had no authority. They couldn't speak. They had to quote other scholars. But Jesus, when he preaches, when he teaches, he grabs their attention. And that's the second reason that we esteem Jesus. He is our teacher. He's the Father's Messiah who's come into the world to accomplish this mission of, of saving a people. But he's our teacher. How did he teach? When you read the New Testament, the teaching of Jesus is fascinating. He's, they're filled with parables and vivid stories that you can't forget. I mentioned a while ago, uh, John, when I was with him, and he told me a story about several of these guys that were murdered and how it happened. I could tell you, but it's too gory. But I remember every one of those stories vividly. I didn't try to memorize them or anything. They just painted a picture in my mind, and I can't forget them. And that's how Jesus was. Jesus constantly told parables. It says he did it to keep the unbelieving ignorant in their ignorance, but to reveal truth to his followers who had faith in him. And so he told stories like the prodigal son or the good Samaritan, the parable of the wedding banquet or the ten virgins. They were simple and they were easy to remember and they revealed truth because what he wanted to do, he wanted them to see the truth. No wonder Nicodemus, you remember who Nicodemus is? He's a guy that came to Jesus in the cover of night, and he was a teacher of Israel. In fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. So he had to be a pretty high position. And he comes to Jesus and he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God. In other words, they could tell the difference. He spoke with authority. He spoke the word of God. He proclaimed it to the people made great declarations of the Father and the Spirit and himself. This is the best way to learn about the Trinity. See what Jesus says about God, about himself, the Son of God, and about the Spirit, the Spirit of God. You know what he said about Jesus, what he revealed about the Father, rather? He revealed he was a father. He's a father. In fact, the nation of Israel was known as the son of God, the nation itself. They were God's people and they were looked at as one person. They were called the son of God, but no individual in Israel ever called God my father. That would be audacity. In fact, they wanted to stone Jesus for referring to God as his father. That was over the top. And yet when he taught his disciples to pray, what did he say? Pray like this, our father in heaven. And the disciples never forgot it. In fact, I hear disciples praying like this even today. Every time I'm with somebody who prays, they always pray, Father, you have the audacity to believe he's your father? Yes, because Jesus revealed that to us, didn't he? 
He taught us that, that God is our Father. When we came to faith in Christ, we were, in fact, John 1 says that Jesus came to his own creation, but his own people didn't receive him. But as many of them as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name, who were born not of the flesh nor the will of man, but of God. We're children of God. And so we know that and we address God as Father, our Father in heaven. And so Jesus is, is giving all this revelation about the Father, Son, and the Spirit in his teaching. He teaches us that the Spirit is the one who leads his disciples into all the truth. In fact, he tells them in the upper room in John 14 and 16 that the Spirit's going to come and he's going to cause them to remember everything he had taught them. I don't know <clears throat> when was the last, the last time you were in a class, let's say a college class or high school class. Can you remember what was being taught? I bet your teacher doesn't remember either. <laughs> and yet, these disciples were told, the Spirit's going to come and he's going to cause you to remember everything that I've said to you. So you get into passages in the Gospels where one of the disciples, like John, the apostle, who was the old, one of the older apostles, and he lived to be 90 or so. He lived up until the... Probably in 90 AD. It's, it's so the tradition goes. But um, in, his, in his gospel, which he wrote much later, 60 years after the events, can you remember what happened to you 60 years ago today? So you say, What are you talking about? I wasn't even in existence 60 years ago. I know that. But I don't remember what was going on in my life 60 years ago. A sort of, let's see. No, I don't. But John, the Apostle John, he writes, for example, in John 7, 37, he says, he quotes Jesus. Now, this is something he was there when Jesus said this. And this is what he says. He quotes Jesus. He says, Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who is believing in me out of his innermost being will, will flow rivers of living water. And then John comments in the letter. He's writing 60 years later, and he comments, and he said, he was speaking about the Holy Spirit who had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now that is amazing, isn't it? That he remembered the exact words of Jesus and he even remembered his own words, how he explained what Jesus was saying. And so the, the Spirit, Jesus reveals, the one who's going to lead his followers into all the truth. And so his teaching... Because he is a teacher, he teaches with wisdom and simplicity and boldness and power. So when we read the scriptures, we're exposed to the greatest teacher who ever lived, but he's so much more than that. His method of teaching, like I say, was parables and stories and vivid ways of describing what he was teaching. And so everyone saw him as a teacher that stunned them. They were amazed by his teaching. Jesus was amazed by their unbelief, by the way. So it says in Mark about these people in Nazareth, they sit and listen to him, but they wouldn't believe on him. And it says, Jesus marveled at their unbelief. He was amazed by it. They wouldn't believe him because they knew him too well. He's, a, he's that guy that just grew up in our, in our village. Now he's 30 years old and he's acting like he's uh, eternal or something. <laughs> the eternal son of God. Jesus 
something else about Jesus that was totally different. This is what I, this is my greatest uh, desire in life. I, I hope I'm like this when I grow up, is that he lived what he taught. He lived what he taught. He saw the things that he described, and the things that he taught came from his heart. He knew exactly what he was talking about. He had seen what he was talking about, and he knew it, and he had the right to speak about it. John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus Christ, the Son. He has made him plain. He has brought him out in the open. The reason he could tell us about the Father and we would hear the real thing, the real story about the Father was he knew the Father. I ran into this uh, expression this past week reading a book by Jared Wilson, and he said he was talking about pastors and parents and people who are discipling others, and he says, and he, says he has a statement, they must see what you want them to be. What he meant by it was this. You can tell people all day long the way they ought to live, the way they ought to pray, the way they ought to follow Christ. But if you're not doing it, they're not going to follow you. If they don't see in you what you're claiming is so important about their Christian life, they're not going to take it to heart. They have to see what you want them to be. Wow. To be like Jesus. To actually, like Jesus, to walk in the Spirit. To live your life in dependence upon the Spirit to empower you and guide you, lead you, fill your heart with truth and live that truth out. That's what he's called us to. But he also uh, is, unveils truth to us that, you can, that everything else in the Bible flows from this. For example, in Mark 10.45, and it was during this period of time, this Galilee ministry, Jesus says, Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And what he's talking about there in the context, he's telling his disciples, the important thing is not that you're the greatest of the disciples. The greatest disciple is the servant of all. He's called us to be humble. I heard a guy say the other day that the greatest pitfall, he, was, he mentioned three, I don't remember the other two, but the one he said is a, the greatest pitfall for a pastor is this, pride. And I'm sure all of you are expert in that because everybody I took to that's been a Christian for very long, they've been in churches, and, and they'll say things like that. The only problem with that was he was such a proud man. And Jesus tells us that humility is a mark of Jesus Christ. And I'm not one of those. I've got to tell you, I don't claim to be humble. I just claim that that is a great desire. I don't know why I'm not humble. I've been humiliated so many times. I should be humble. But, but he's called us to be like him. What about the content of his, pre, of his teaching? What did he lay great, stre- great stress on? Well, the kingdom of God. He's the king. And so he taught about the kingdom of God. I'm amazed by the teaching in Scripture of the kingdom of God because just like what you heard, when you, if you listen carefully to Isaiah 61... You hear God promising Israel he's going to exalt them. And there's going to be a time in which they're going to live in the incredible blessings of God. Now, that was written during a time when they were headed for Babylonian captivity. They were the scum of the earth. They were on the very bottom of the rungs. They had nothing. They were cast off their land. 
The temple was destroyed. The wall was destroyed. And they're down in Babylonian captivity. And God makes them this promise. I'm going to lift you up. But you see, this is, this is a great expression of the work of Messiah. This is what he does for all those who come to him in faith. He lifts us up. He makes the blind see. The poor he enriches. Now, those are, those are spiritual realities as well as physical. I'm not saying Jesus certainly did heal physically blind people, but he did something glorious when he gave you sight, a spiritual sight to see the truth of who Christ is. That's something no man can do. None other than... God himself, through the work of the Spirit, can open the eyes of people to see the glory of Christ and to be drawn to him to the point that they're willing to give up anything and everything in order to follow Christ. Most of you know the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, obey the commandments. And he mentions some of the commandments of the Ten Commandments. And the man says, I've kept them since I was a youth. And then Jesus said, you lack one thing. Go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and come and follow me. And went, Why did he do that? I thought when we do evangelism, we're supposed to make people love the idea of coming to Christ. And Jesus says to him, uh, get rid of everything you have, sell it all, and give it away, and come follow me. Come follow him. Well, that's not go live in my mansion. It's to be with me on the road. <laughs> go with me as I go around preaching the gospel. And it says that that man went away quite sad because he wasn't about to do that. He was rich. And it says Jesus was sad about that because he loved the man. You see what happens when the Spirit of God opens your eyes to the glory of Christ. Everything else is insignificant. Everything else is insignificant. Everything that you love and and esteem and raise up is insignificant in light of who Christ is. And when your eyes are filled by the Holy Spirit with that reality you would give up anything to have Christ. One last thing, and why we esteem him and worship him is because he's our savior. When we talk about salvation, it's a big picture. It's a whole picture of being not only forgiven, but transformed by the renewing power of God until we are conformed to the image of Christ. So it's this entire process from the beginning by faith God declares us righteous, and then he begins to apply his teaching to our heart that sanctifies us. You see, justification comes about because he's our substitute on the cross. We believe on him, and his righteousness is imputed to us just as our sins were imputed to him. But then sanctification comes through believing what he has said and and living our lives in response to what he said. And you know my favorite commandment, because I've said it a hundred times, husbands love your wives the way Christ loved the church. That's obedience to Christ. Because Christ commanded that. And so his teaching, when we take his teaching seriously, we begin to be impacted by it, and it's transforming. It transforms our lives as Christians. Now the consequences of his teaching was the crowd was divided. There were those who rejected him, and there were those who embraced him by faith. That always happens without exception. When Jesus Christ is preached, it divides the people, the hearers, those who turn to him in faith and those who reject him and move on. So he divided these hearers into two different, two different groups. Some rejected him, and some did believe and came to know forgiveness. We're told in Mark that a few of them trusted him. 
and they saw miracles happen in their lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5 says, For our gospel did not come to you, Paul says to the Thessalonians, our gospel did not come to you in word only. It wasn't just me saying a bunch of stuff, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what sort of men we became among you for your sakes. And you were transformed. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word of, in much tribulation. In other words, they believed on Christ and it caused them all kinds of trouble. People began to persecute them. But you did it with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers throughout the entire area in which they lived. So the Word of God is a power of great force when it is believed. Like I said before, if, you, if you're not familiar with the story of Jesus, if you're not familiar with the gospel, which is the good news about Jesus Christ, what he's done, one of the best ways to, to be exposed to it is reading the scriptures. Read the Gospel of Mark, one book. It's 50 pages in my Bible, so it takes you, you know, a couple hours to read that. Read an hour one day and an hour another day or 15 minutes and however, but read it and get exposed to this revelation about Jesus Christ. This is how we come to know him is through his word. Because the word of God expressed by Jesus Christ in his teaching is a great, great power when it's believed, it's transforming and it's liberating. It sets us free, produces God's love in human hearts and good works in the world. It has that kind of impact on us. We actually start loving people that we used to hate. If there's a certain group of people, a kind of people that you hate, Jesus Christ can transform your heart and you will find yourself strangely transformed to the place where you love people like that because his word is absolutely transforming and it brings honor to the throne of God because God the father is the one who sent his son into the world and he wants you to receive him this is the testimony of God we're told about his son you you know when he was baptized the father spoke and said you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased but we're told in 1 John that, that God's declaration about his son is that he's given to us eternal life. And this life, eternal life, which is the life of God, has, is in his son. And whoever has his son has his life. So the father sent his son into the world to be received and believed upon. And, and for the benefits of having Christ in your life to become, come to fruition in your life. He wants you to receive his son. He wants you to turn back to him and believe upon him. It makes the forgiven believer Christ's person, body, soul, and spirit. Uh, there's a lot of things we could commit ourselves to, but one thing happens when you come to believe on Christ is this is the ultimate passion of your life is to know Christ and to make him known. And nothing can compete with that when you walk by faith. Um, what if you don't believe? Well, notice the cost of unbelief here. And I'm going to read to you from Mark chapter 6, just one, two verses actually. It, it says of this visit to Nazareth, it says, And he, Jesus, could do no miracle there except that he, told, he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He couldn't do much. Wouldn't you like to be able to do that? Lay your hands on a few sick people and then be healed. And he marveled. He was amazed at their unbelief. 
If you've heard me this morning and you don't know him, this one who came, that people might be saved, who taught that his death was necessary for our salvation, then what I would appeal to you to do is to come to Christ. Listen to the words which tell you how how far you are from God and how much you need his saving work in your life. Come to Christ. He's provided the sacrifice by which people can be saved, forgiven, your record expunged, and put on your record not what you have done, but what Christ has done. He's taken, he's taken the righteousness of Christ and he has imputed it to every person who comes to faith in Christ so that God sees us as perfectly righteous in his eyes because we've believed on Christ. And then he begins to change us through the power of Christ's word. Faith produces confidence in Christ. It's a mark of Christians. Christians pray. In fact, it's one of the most basic characteristics of Christians. Why do they do that? Because they trust Christ, and therefore they know that God is their Father. So when they pray through Christ, sometimes we tack on in the name of Jesus. The reason we do that is not because it's just a habit, but because we believe the only way that we have approach to God, access to God, is through Christ. And because we have Christ, we can talk to the Father, and we can tell him our needs. So this characteristic of all Christians, of all times, throughout the whole world. Every place I've ever gone in the world, and I haven't gone a lot of places, but I've gone a few, and I can tell you, every place I've ever gone, Christians pray. Christians pray because we trust what Christ has done for us to give us access to the Father, and the Father cares about us. In fact, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you can ask whatever you desire, and it will be given to you, and that would glorify my Father. I love this truth, that God's, God is glorified when people ask, come to him in prayer and ask in Jesus' name, and he answers the prayer that glorifies God. So let me pray for you as we stop. Our Father, we are grateful for Jesus Christ. We thank you that we don't have to settle for anything else to put our faith in. We don't put our faith in a tr- church. We don't put our faith in religion. We don't put our faith in our own ability to do anything, we put all of our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who came into the world and became one of us so that he could stand in our place and exhaust the righteous judgment of God on our behalf that we would be set free. We thank you for Christ today. I pray that every person here, they would be drawn to Christ. Their eyes would be upon him. Their spiritual eyes would be open and they could see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I pray for us, Father, that you would use us to bear witness of your Son because he has been done such glorious things for us. We give you thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.